Hello and welcome back to Bad Apple. I'm Riley. I'm Helen. And today, Helen is back with her ideas. Last week she had an idea. This week she's had an idea. What has come over you, Helen? A crippling full-time job. Wow. And it's got you thinking, huh? No, I love my job. About the morbid side of life. But, yeah, I guess so. It's so structure, routine, many hours. I guess my creative side is seeking... Mmm, an outlet. Mm. I like that. (laughs) Your idea this week was a captivity case. Captivity. Captivity exists in two senses. Mm -hmm. Emotionally and physically. Sometimes it's a mix of the two for different cases. Some people have described this case as being Australia's Joseph Fritzl. Mm -hmm. And if you guys that know the Joseph Fritzl case, um, he essentially held his own daughter hostage in a basement and sexually assaulted her and she had his children. Many times. Yeah. This case is known as the Mo incest case. It gets its name from the area that it was reported to police in, which is Mo, Victoria. The offending, though, took place over a span of 28 years and several locations. Everyone in the case remains unidentified for obvious reasons. So the main girl in this case is referred to as M, and her father is referred to as R. Content warning. We don't always do these, because I feel like there is a little bit of a presumption that if you're listening to a true crime podcast, there's going to be some content. But content warning for this one, because there is um, significant discussion of sexual assault and other physical violence. So yeah. If that's not your thing, tune out now. This is not the story for you. Not the story for you. The abuse began in 1977 when Em was 13 and her father 34. Em had come home from school of an afternoon where she was told by her father to go into his bedroom and get undressed. She followed these instructions out of fear that she would get into trouble and that her father would yell. She was told to lay on the bed where her father kissed her on the lips and touched her exposed breasts. While Em was afraid... As a result of her limited experience, she thought that all men must be like this. During this interaction, R told M, You're damaged goods, and no one will want you. This was the beginning of ongoing sexual abuse that M experienced in her family home. Around a month after this first offence, R's behaviour became more brazen, and he began touching her on the breasts and bottom in public on a number of occasions, including in front of M's friends. The kissing became a daily occurrence, and when M spoke up about her uncomfortability, she was told by her father that if he couldn't have her, then no one could, and that he could do whatever he wanted to her. After this, M stopped inviting friends to her house and became socially isolated. Soon, when M was 14, she moved with her mother and two brothers to a house in Preston, a northeastern suburb of Melbourne. For the months that they lived there, M did not see her father, and therefore the offending stopped. However, this was short-lived, as R joined his family when they moved to a flat in Port Melbourne, and the offending recommenced immediately. R would touch his daughter inappropriately in public and prevent her from interacting with boys her age. M began running away from home repeatedly in a desperate attempt to get away from her father. She would sometimes get accommodation in a hostel, but it wasn't rare for her to sleep on the streets. Just 14 and sleeping on the streets in Port Melbourne in the 70s? Mm. Crazy. That is... Super dangerous. What's around Port Melbourne? Port Melbourne now is like, there's houses there now, but there's a lot of like industrial stuff down there. Right. Is it where the boats are? Uh, I guess so, yeah. There is boats there. After a period of time away, M returned back to the family home, and it wasn't long before the abuse started again. By this point, 
Ah's alcohol abuse had become more severe. This led to the first occasion where he forced his daughter to engage in sexual intercourse. This occurred on the 28th of September, 1980. M told her father that she didn't want to have sex with him, but he responded with, you'll do as I tell you to do, you'll do what I want, and M didn't argue with him through fear that he would hurt her further. Over the next five months, this occurred on a number of occasions, particularly after R had been drinking. A few months into this pattern of offending, M ran away again. She'd been diagnosed with epilepsy and was on medication, and as her mental health declined, she attempted to overdose on her epilepsy medication while she was away from home. She was hospitalised for three days at the Prince Henry Hospital, which is now the Monash Medical Centre in Melbourne South. During this time, she told a doctor and a social worker what had been happening at home, including the sexual violence at the hands of her father. While the social worker attempted to find alternative accommodation, none was available and M had to return home. It's unclear whether the police were contacted on this occasion. A week after M was discharged from hospital, R resumed his inappropriate behaviour, pushing M around and sexually harassing her. He was forcing her to have sex with him daily, and sometimes twice a day, all the while emotionally abusing her, causing her to live in a state of permanent fear of what would happen if she tried to stop him. Over the next five months, R forced his daughter to have sex with him on approximately 70 occasions. M wasn't 18 yet and had already experienced such horrific abuse at the hands of her father, someone she should have been able to trust. Over the next 10 years, the abuse continued as the family lived in various suburbs of Melbourne. It's estimated that M was forced into sexual intercourse by her father approximately 700 times during this period. In February of 1990, things came to a turning point as M, who was now 25 years old, became pregnant with her father's child. R refused to believe that the child was his and called his daughter a slut and a, quote, worthless piece of shit, in addition to the physical abuse that she suffered during her pregnancy. This is when R became even more restrictive over M's movements, sending his friends to watch her whenever she left the house. M gave birth to a baby boy in November 1990 who suffers from an intellectual disability. You might be thinking, this woman has just had a child. There's a lot of appointments and paperwork and just interpersonal connections that go into having a baby. Did no one ask any questions about it? She was still living in the family home and no one asked anything? Who was the father? If they did ask, R had obviously come up with a story for M to run with that was convincing enough. And I guess this family doesn't seem like the type to probe much further. The mom was around this whole time. Mm-hmm. Did she ask? If she what? did, then she, yeah. Hmm. You don't have to put a father on the birth certificate. Really? Yeah, you can leave it blank. True. For around a month after M's first child was born, her father largely left her alone. This reprieve was short-lived, with the offending resuming at the same frequency as before her pregnancy. M was once again being forced to submit to sex with her father on a daily basis. When M commenced voluntary work in 1992, her father, obviously feeling threatened by this element of independence, told her that he would kill her if she ever tried to leave home. He also prevented her from dating other men, telling her that she was his. In January 1998, M became pregnant once again as a result of her father's abuse. He continued to sexually abuse her throughout her pregnancy up until she gave birth to another boy in November 1998. This baby was born with an enlarged liver and an unattached kidney and had to undergo surgery at nine weeks to remove his kidney. He also had an intellectual disability with an IQ of 55, which is classified as a mild mental disability. Around two months after baby number two was born, 
Ara's offending resumed again, including the physical and emotional abuse. He continued to force her to have sex with him, this time even while her mother was present in the family home. Not long after this, in April 1999, M became pregnant again, and much like the last time, R continued to have sex with her during the pregnancy. That is a hot six months. In between the two? Yeah. Yeah, I know. Very close together. Yeah. It's possible, but I feel like... Look, I don't have a baby, so I don't know. But I feel like you're meant to leave a little bit more room. Not that they were planning any of this, obviously. Mm. But what I'm saying is that could have like put her in more danger. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Baby number three, another boy, was born in January 2000 without any significant health problems. However, he requires speech therapy and has difficulty in social interactions. Throughout this time, Em was suffering from depression and experiencing suicidal thoughts. She was now a mother to three of her father's children and was essentially a prisoner in her own home. She couldn't leave or have her own friends through fear of her father's violence. Around nine months later, in October 2000, M once again became pregnant. She gave birth prematurely at 34 weeks, this time to a baby girl. Sadly, this baby had a number of health issues from the time of her birth, beyond that which would be experienced by an ordinary premature baby. She had respiratory failure, severe chronic lung disease, an abnormal airway, brain abnormalities, including incomplete development and fluid on her brain, and twisted feet. She was placed on a ventilator in the newborn intensive care unit, but unfortunately passed away at 11 weeks. While the baby was in intensive care, M stayed at Ronald McDonald House. Her father stayed with her on a couple of occasions. M recalls that these were the first occasions that the two were alone together, that he had left her alone and didn't have sex with her. I've got a potentially bad question. Okay. When a baby is born yep. with so many problems, are the doctors allowed to consider if the baby is a product of incest right that is a good question i think from what i know i feel like doctors are often trained in like especially these days like trained in looking at family dynamics and seeing like if there's anything abnormal i wonder maybe she was just saying i don't know who the father is i don't know who the father is so they don't have that background like maybe that you know they could just be thinking well maybe whoever the father is has all these genetic issues but you're right you would think that it would cross someone's mind maybe but without testing for dna how will you know yeah and you can't just like you can't really ask that would be really awkward yeah if you made a incorrect assumption there yeah i reckon if you were just like a really cunning doctor you might just be like sir there's mole on your back come have it checked out oh can you do dna checks without asking like can you in America. Oh. Well. I'm pretty sure some states. American doctors. Let listen us up. <laughs> yeah, Has Helen got know. a plan for you? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Interesting. Interesting. I bet that's a whole thing in the medical field we just don't know anything about. Mm. Keeping an eye out for yeah. that. Weird family situations. Yeah. I reckon it would be pretty common. Not this. Sweet home Alabama. Not this, but I think it's more common than we think. Incest. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's why I said Sweet Home Alabama. Right, right. <laughs> but in other places as well. <laughs> yeah. Not this direct, but this is illegal. This in is... In America as well. Yeah. This is straight up illegal. It's illegal here as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I know. All right. <laughs> I was like, just in case you were wondering. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just wanted to clarify. But, yeah. After her daughter died, Em returned to the family home, 
which was now back in Mo. R's offending started again almost immediately. M was forced to have sex with her father approximately twice a week for the next year. In 2001, M was receiving counselling services from the Epilepsy Foundation. In the course of this, she told a counsellor about the abuse she'd experienced at the hands of her father. The counsellor helped M make an application for separate housing arrangements, but she didn't pursue this option after her father found out and was extremely unhappy about her plans. He said that if she was going to move, that he and the children should go with her. This must be before counsellors. Like mandatory reporting? Yes. Or was yeah, it not? I think so. <gasps> yeah, okay. It must be. Because that is straight up danger to... Her. Yeah, which yeah. is one of the conditions. Yeah. Well, you got to say something. Mm. The following year, M attended the Centre Against Sexual Assault, once again in an attempt to reach out for support. This time, a police officer and a child protection worker attended the family home in Mo. However, after this visit, M refused to make a formal statement and also denied that R was the father of her children. She was frightened that her father would harm her, and furthermore that her children would be taken away. Despite this, M managed to follow through with her plan to attain separate housing with the assistance from the counsellor from the Epilepsy Foundation. In 2003, she moved with her brother and the three children to Morwell, which is just 13 minutes from Mo by car. Not exactly the biggest move, but it was a step. However, R was undeterred by this separation and continued to visit her and ask her to come visit him with the children. What started as the potential for a new beginning quickly returned to the living hell that M was experiencing before she left. She remained under her father's control emotionally and physically. As the prospect that someone would find out about the abuse became more likely, with M now out of his control and the involvement of authorities, R's behaviour continued and perhaps became more brazen. R would visit M in her new home under various pretexts and force her to have sex with him. On one occasion, in January 2005, Two years after M had moved from the family home, R came to her house at night after he had been drinking. M was in her room, and her children and her brother were asleep in other rooms of the house. While M was putting laundry away, R entered the room and groped her breasts. M pushed her father away, to which he responded, I'll teach you to knock me back, as he grabbed her around the throat and pushed her against the wall. R punched his daughter in the stomach three times before she was able to protect herself by kneeing him in the groin. He backed away temporarily, but came back with even more fury. He overpowered her, and M submitted, fearing for her life. This time, R proceeded for the first time to have anal sex with her. M told him that he was hurting her, and she told him to stop, but he didn't. One month after this incident, M once again told her counsellor at the Epilepsy Foundation about the abuse. This time, M was able to move to a new house in an undisclosed location, and in June 2005, she made a statement to the police but asked them not to investigate because she was fearful what would happen if R or any of his friends found out she had spoken to the police. The undisclosed location, not just undisclosed to us. He also didn't know where it was. Oh, I yeah. Th- yeah, that's what I assumed. Oh, good. Just wanted to clarify. Just when you said that, I realised it could have two meanings. Oh, I just assumed universally undisclosed. Secret location, yeah. It wasn't until three years later, in 2008, that she asked police to investigate her claims. At this point, she was 43. Mm-hmm. So that's 30 years after the first time she was abused. That's true. And her father would be 64. Mm-hmm. Maybe he was getting old and a bit like... Right, so she thought, he can't, like, get me. 
Possibly. Mm. Felt a bit safer. Yeah. Mm. I could see that, maybe. Yeah. The police interviewed R in July 2008, and they took a forensic sample. While R denied the claims in the interview, the forensic sample was undeniable, proving that R was the father of M's three sons. I just realised that she lost the only girl she had. Yeah. How sad. At this point, R was charged with 83 sexual abuse offences. Police served an intervention order on R in 2009. When they gave him the order, R made a number of derogatory remarks about M and said that if he found her, he would kill her, which would really prove the point of the intervention order here. Really smart. Really good thinking. He really sent it home with that. <laughs> yeah. When the person handed him the paper, yeah. they were like, well. Like, good. Yeah. I'm glad I'm here. <laughs> when R appeared in court in November 2009, he pled guilty to 10 counts of incest, two counts of indecent assault of a girl under 16. Two. Yeah. And one count of common assault. Yeah. One. Yeah. And then he just asked that the remainder of the charges be taken into consideration. When you get like a certain, when there's like so many, be taken into consideration. Like you're just like, he's just, he's kind of saying, yeah. Yeah, there was 700. There was, yeah. There's 83 charges here. Oh. Yeah, there's not 700 cuz you can um you can group offending together. You can group offending uh-huh. together so that you can make it into a charge easier. They won't be able to establish evidence from every single time cuz there just wouldn't be like enough of a record. Yeah. But it would be easier to establish like for this period of 5 months, it was approximately this frequency. I remember this this and this. I have this evidence that I told this person, and, like, so that is one charge. So it's not about occasions? No. Oh. Not always. Ah. Yeah. I see. Especially when we're talking on this magnitude. Yeah. Yeah. Despite his guilty plea, R sought evidence which would minimise his role in the offending during his psychological and psychiatric assessments. He alleged that M played a large role in the offending and that she effectively wouldn't leave him alone. He also spoke of significant childhood trauma and a history of mental illness. R was born in 1943. At the age of 13, his mother died from pneumonia. After this, R was raised by his father, who he described as a bastard. He said he would be singled out by him for punishment and that he believed he was admitted to hospital in a coma at five years old as a result of being beaten by his father. After his mother died, R dropped out of school. He said that he had always struggled to make friends and that this had persisted until he was arrested for these matters. He was getting on with the other prisoners in remand. Yeah. He suddenly could make friends. Yeah, he was getting... Yeah. He'd found his people. I was married in 1964 and described it negatively. He said he wasn't able to argue with women or assert himself. Sure. (laughs) And had lost contact with his family after he was married. He engaged with a number of odd jobs after leaving school, but he could no longer maintain employment as a result of his problems with alcohol and had not worked since 1991. He had been on the disability support pension since 1996 as a result of his alcoholism and smoking and a number of medical issues related to these two things. In terms of mental health, this was also an ongoing issue for R. He said that he had been hospitalised a number of times in the 1960s after self-harm and suicide attempts. He was diagnosed with depression and had been medicated with Lagactol, an antipsychotic, as well as electroconvulsive therapy. R denied having a problem with substance abuse, but evidence was presented of a previous drink-driving offence. The court also heard evidence about R's psychosexual history, which I learnt 
is not someone being crazy about sex.、Mm. That was my first impression of the term. I can psychosexual. see. I can see where you would get that. It's about what the development, the psychological part of sexual development. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. R reported that he had approximately twenty sexual partners during his life. In terms of the relationship with his daughter, he says he didn't know how it started, but that he had always loved her and that she would follow him around because, well, she was his kid. She was your child. child. They follow you around because you are your their father. That's what they do. He described being in a loveless marriage in his forties when the relationship with his daughter started. He described this time as bad years. Yeah, it was bad for everyone. Champion. Maybe he had that histrionic personality disorder where you just think everyone is in love with you.、Mm. And he was like, "Oh, this kid is in love." Even though that's fucked. Yeah, that's so wrong. That is、like, intolerable. He is, yeah, he's horrible. Oh, she was following me around. Oh, yuck! Get in the bin. What? What did you expect when you became a father? I don't know. Like a child to not do that? What? That's what. That's what they do. Because they need. They don't know how to do anything. Yeah, you give them food and you help them learn things. That's all. That's all you do. Isn't it makes it? no sense to me. He's not. He's speaking gibberish. Yeah. He once again tried to shift the blame onto his daughter, saying that he had tried recurrently to stop the offending, but his daughter had wanted it to continue. He said he didn't know why she didn't report it, and that he was never violent or coerced her into staying quiet. He said that most of their sexual encounters had been vaginal, but that it's possible he had anal sex with her on the last occasion. End this paragraph. I'm over him. Yeah, it's about to get worse. The psychiatrist, Dr. Sullivan. Believed that R had a number of maladaptions as a result of his mother's death and the paternal alcohol abuse and violence he had experienced as a child. Dr. Sullivan was of the opinion that R had a significant personality disorder, which had been relatively persistent over the course of his life and had manifested in the chronically depressed mood, aggression, self-harm, long-standing relationship difficulties, impulsivity, and substance abuse. In terms of substance abuse. Dr. Sullivan did not believe R when he said he didn't have a problem. R exhibited significant cognitive impairment, which was consistent with long-term alcoholism. Dr. Sullivan noted that while this personality disorder was significant, that it would not constitute the sort of lack of control that was seen in R's offending. He also said that R was not so cognitively impaired that he would have been unable to understand his actions. He also said that his intoxication would not have significantly impaired his cognitive capacity in a way which reduced his culpability. While there may have been times that R was not in a position to make a calm or reasoned decision, this did not account for the totality of his offending. Dr. Sullivan was able to shed light on R's tendency to minimize the issue with alcohol and the cognitive distortions relating to his daughter's role in the relationship. These were regarded as self-deceptions, which were common in people with similar personality disorders. He said that these distortions would have allowed R to continue the offending, even though he knew it was wrong. Overall, Dr. Sullivan said that there was no causal link between R's mental health and his offending, meaning that his culpability was not reduced. At sentencing, R's counsel had nothing to rebut this, and could only argue that the issues should be seen as leading him to make irrational decisions to some extent. The sentencing judge. In her analysis of the Verdon's principles, said that the evidence did not support a finding of reduced moral culpability. The Verdon's principles are like when someone is so mentally impaired that they are unable to make 
a decision and that therefore reduces their moral culpability for an offence so their sentence could be lessened. Oh, yeah. Yeah, which is... We've been there before. We've talked about it before, exactly. And I, it definitely has its place. And as the sentencing judge decided, it just wasn't here. It was not here. It wasn't here. The only thing taken into account at sentencing was R's advanced age. There is a principle, essentially, for the courts to give mercy to prisoners who are faced with the prospect of death in custody, that they should deliver a sentence which allows people to have a prospect of life after prison. However, even this was not given great weight, and R was sentenced to 22 years and five months in prison in November 2009, with a non-parole period of 18 years, meaning he would be 84 before he's eligible for release. The sentencing judge delivered the following remarks, quote, You defiled your daughter over many years on a regular basis. Your offending involved a gross breach of trust. To describe your treatment of your daughter as appalling is a gross understatement. R appealed his sentence in 2012, arguing that the sentencing judge had not given enough weight to his age and mental impairment. But the sentencing judge's reasoning was reaffirmed and his appeal was dismissed. M was essentially a prisoner at the hands of her father for 28 years. During this time, she was raped by him around 1,500 times, in addition to constant sexual harassment and emotional and physical abuse. She experienced a traumatic premature birth and lost that child as a result of other genetic illnesses. Her disenfranchisement at the hands of her own father meant that it took over seven years from her original disclosure of the abuse to receive assistance in removing herself from that situation. This has got to be one of the most angering cases that we've done. Yeah. I was thinking about the sentence and his total sentence was 22 years and five months, but she was abused for 28 years. And I know that normally I'm the first person to be like, oh, there's a system and we have laws and we have precedents and whatever. But oh my God, I wish we didn't at this point. Like, I wish we didn't for this case. I wish we could just be like, you're going to jail until you, like, doesn't matter if you die in there, you're going to jail for longer. Are you just not allowed to sentence someone for that long if it's, like, assault? There would be, like, minimum and maximum sentences for each offence. And then, even though there was a lot, they would have had to take into account principles of, like, where certain ones would have had to be served concurrently instead of consecutively and things like that. So I'm sure that it was all above board but I kind of wish it wasn't above board. This doesn't make sense to me. Literally, literally the court sends it with 40 life sentences. You're right. For the hypothetical afterlife. Yeah. But now suddenly someone's like, oh, we can't let him think he's going to die in there. Yeah. He will. Just let him. Because he hasn't just ruined his daughter's life. He's ruined everyone in his family's life. Her, yeah. The, her mum, her brothers. All the kids. Those three children. Yeah. How do you live with that? Yeah. Is it better or worse that your victim has to keep living on with that question? Good question. Mm. That's the question. I hope from the very bottom of my heart that she's doing much better and I hope that she's getting the support that she needs and that the children are getting the support that they need and the, and the rest of the family. Especially, I feel like I've been... This week, which will be last week when you guys are listening to this, there has just been, it's just one thing after another at this point. For women this week, we've just been oh, copying it. Yeah. In the 
world of politics in Australia. And interpersonally. I've been having a crap week. Yeah, well, there you go. Me too. But that's probably not because I'm a woman. Probably not because of the patriarchy, but other things are. And I am tired of it. I'm tired of it. And this is upsetting me. So look after yourself. And look after the women around you. But I feel like, um... I feel like if a father was assaulting his son like that, obviously he can't have his children. Mm. But it could probably go for just as long and just as unno- like under the radar as this one had gone on for. Yeah, that is very like true. Despite whatever system, no one followed through or spoke up, you know? Yeah. Or asked enough questions, probed enough into mm. what was going on. Yeah, and I know the first time she spoke up was in the 70s. And I'm assuming, like, that's well before we're thinking about mandatory reporting. We're barely thinking about psychology. Yeah. So... Or gay rights. Yeah. Or... Or we... Aboriginal people were barely in the Constitution. race equality. Yeah. yeah. So... Hmm. Yeah, but the system has failed on multiple occasions here. Hmm. And it probably continues to fail, to be mm-hmm. honest. Mm-hmm. People would be slipping through the cracks every day. I read an article about, like, incest mm. and in Victoria, and apparently, obviously, so much of it just goes unreported. Mm. And But they estimate that it's, like, one of the, the most common types of sexual offending. Really? Yeah. Damn. Yeah. I guess it doesn't always have to be, like, sex. It can be, like, other mm. sexual assault or sexual harassment, but, like, that interfamily offences are one of the most common. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it doesn't make sense, but I feel like a lot of the cases here about is someone they know, and if it's someone they know, it's more likely their family mm. or friends, but, like, family, you know? Yeah, yeah. Especially if they're young. Yeah. Like, you're a kid. Who do you know? Yeah, you know your family. Yeah. It's interesting. It is interesting to throw up, like, why this kind of sentencing for assault, like, so drastic from murder. mm yeah, like, murder is obviously, like, we've constructed that as the worst offence you can commit as a person. But the fact that, like, there's no really other way to put this, but the fact that you can, like, murder one person one time in whatever circumstances, like, some fit of rage or, you know, whether you've been planning it or not, and you can go to jail for life, but you can mm. assault someone so violently... Decades. For decades... And get 22 years. You know what I just thought about? Do you think it's anything to do with the Bible? The Bible? Maybe. You know how, like, I, don't, I haven't read the Bible, girl. This is on you. One of the... There's a bunch of stuff you just shouldn't do mm-hmm. that God says. Yeah. There's like 10. Is it commandments? What I've are heard they of that. What are I they have called? heard of that. And one is like, you cannot kill another person. Uh-huh. God we... didn't write anything about sexual assault. That's true. God, was not thinking ahead. (laughs) But you are right. I feel like inherently because our societies have evolved from these like religious groups and like the where church and state were so linked and they're separated now. But of course, we still have the hangover of of uh, religion in our laws. Obviously, we do. That's why it took so long to get marriage equality, I guess. Um, I just Googled it and I hit it spot on the head. The Ten Commandments, and one is thou shall not kill. What are the other ones? The other ones are... What is... I am <laughs> I am the Lord thy God. <laughs> what? The that's first me. three? That's me on Saturday night. <laughs> the first four are just gas-ups. No other gods before me. <laughs> the Ten Commandments are, 
I am the Lord thy God. Is that one? Or is he just saying that? I'm pretty sure that's a commandment. It's the opening phrase of the Ten oh, Commandments. Oh, okay. That's just, that's the, the preamble. No other gods before me. Mm-hmm. No graven images or likenesses. Not take the Lord's name in vain. I've heard that one before. Remember, shout out Anne-Marie. <laughs> shout out Anne-Marie for the fourth commandment. She, that's the only one she ever <laughs> caught up me for. <laughs> Remember the Sabbath day. Um, that's fi- We're five commandments in and he's only been talking about himself. Now we start with the rules. Okay. Honour thy father and thy mother. Mm, I don't like that one. It comes first. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. What is like the definition or of adultery? God will inflict serious diseases on the Pharaoh and his whole household. Adultery. Oh, because the Pharaoh slept with Abram's wife. So it's cheating. Yeah. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. That's so specific. Yeah. <laughs> thou shalt not covet. What does that mean? Covet? Oh, like take? But that's stealing. It's like don't covet your neighbor's house. Is that adverse possession? You shall not covet means we should banish our desires for whatever does not belong to us. Oh, so I guess it's the precursor steal. to stealing. No, it's when you want that thing. Oh, oh. You shall not even desire don't it. Don't covet it. Do not desire right. it and do not steal it. That makes sense. Both. The whole package. Just oh. don't want things that don't belong to you at all and don't take it. Okay. Love your mum and dad. Don't cheat on your spouse. Don't, don't kill, kill anyone. anyone. And don't remember Sabbath. <laughs> remember the Sabbath and don't use the Lord's name in vain. That's the only one I know. These ten are pretty easy to abide by. Are they? Oh, I no. covet all the time. You're right. The last one is really difficult. But I'd be covered in everything. Stealing, killing, cheating. Um, I would be terrible. I can't even remember. First of all, the five can. First five can just go out the window. Loving mum and dad. Don't kill. Don't cheat. Don't steal. Don't give a false witness account. Anyway, back to my original point. Mm-hmm. There's nothing in here about sexual assault. Yeah. Nothing in the Ten Commandments about sexual assault. Mm-hmm. And if we're building, these are like the pillars mm-hmm. of our current laws of our Christianity. Of a, of a society. Yeah, and, and by, by extension, mm-hmm. society. What I'm saying is maybe that's why you get 60 life sentences mm-hmm. for killing a bunch of people mm-hmm. and less years than the amount you assaulted someone for. Yeah. Yeah. You're probably onto something. What's the study of humankind? I'd be great at that. Uh, sociology. Sociology? Yeah. That's what I did. That's what I did, girl. Maybe come with my come with my gag, huh? <laughs> Damn. Anyway. Enough about that. Enough. Enough about Moses breaking the tablet of the Ten Commandments and having to rewrite it. I feel like after you re- <laughs> such a drag on <laughs> the Ten Commandments. Uh-huh. I'm not going to drag religion or Christianity in general, but specifically the Ten Commandments. After you read the first five, how can you take the rest seriously? Yeah. The first five is just like, don't forget my day. Don't forget me. There was no one better than me. <laughs> Which, <laughs> like, is a bit of a mood. Yeah. <laughs> that would be my, t- my Tinder bio. It should just be a take on the Ten Commandments. The first five yeah. is like, my name is Helen. There was no Helen before me. Don't forget. Don't forget Helen, Helen Day. Helen Day. Which day is Helen Day? Every day. It's definitely Tuesday. Okay. Something about a Tuesday. It does have you energy, to be honest. Yeah, what's that about? Don't know. What's your Riley? What's Riley Day? Maybe. Sunday? I took a stab in the dark. Yeah. I feel like I vibe with a Sunday. Mm. Well. That's all for today. That is all. We hope you enjoyed hearing about this horrible case. We hope we have satisfied your morbid curiosity. It was tough. We took on for the team. We're angry. We're angry. You're probably angry. Uh-huh. 
Is the man still in jail? Yep. He will be in jail until at least 2027. Okay. So we've got time. At which point he will be... Eligible... Oh, he'll be 84. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. You know, average life expectancy for a man, it's getting up there. Mm Mm-hmm. Especially not an alcoholic man either. That's an average man. Well, we've mentioned we've mentioned the big guy enough this episode. That's we've true. given him a lot of credit here. We, so so if, if he wants to like shine some light on some justice on this, I mean, just smite someone, you know. Big you can man. just point your finger. <laughs> God, if you're listening. Yeah. All right. See you guys next week. See you. Goodbye. Bye.